How do we build a society in which we want to live based on some set of moral claims about what we owe each other, how we ought to organize our lives without losing the dynamism? And here, many countries do it differently, some better than others. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Yohai Bankler, Professor of Entrepreneurial Legal Studies at Harvard Law School and Co-Director of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Yohai is known for coining the term commons-based peer production, which describes collaborative efforts or social production in the creation of information goods such as Apache Server or Wikipedia. In 2012, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award from Oxford University in recognition of his contribution to the study and public understanding of the internet and information goods. Yohai has written a number of influential books, including The Wealth of Networks, Network Propaganda, and The Penguin and Leviathan. Our conversation with Yohai focuses on the role of capitalism, institutions, and ideology in shaping technology and societal outcomes. Yohai's theory centers around the notion that it is not technology and software that shape change, but rather that the dynamics of power-seeking in capitalism have subsumed and directed technology and software towards the same aim as it always had, which is to maximize profit for a narrow set of profit-reaping classes while legitimizing it under a patina of claims of self-actualization, democratization, social mobility, and improvement in well-being for all. Yohai's framework pushes back on the prevailing wisdom that technology is the cause of change, but rather an arena where the dynamics of capitalism established since the 17th century are driving, while a naturalized view of technology is simply a red herring. We also discuss the political economy of technology, commons-based peer production as a value generation model, and the value of decentralized blockchain systems like Bitcoin and Ethereum. This was a very refreshing conversation. It's clear that the world could learn a lot from the wisdom of Yohai Bankler. Professor Bankler, wonderful to have you with us. Such an honor to have this conversation. We thought a good starting point might be to explore what sparked your interest in studying the role of technology in shaping societal outcomes. Well, that was that was a while ago. Mostly I think it was it was the sense in 92, 93, 94 that the internet was really going to transform everything. This pervasive sense in the small group of people who were already connected that this was going to change everything, that I'd been working on, at that time, on 19th century land reform, Homestead Act, various other contexts in which the basic rules of control over the resources that underlay production and relations of production in society. And then uh, suddenly it looked like here we were in the middle of an information economy and the basic resources were up for grabs. It was the first time essentially since the Industrial Revolution where the basic core instruments 
of production in the most advanced sectors were widely distributed, not universally distributed, obviously, but widely distributed, much more so than had been the case for uh, a couple of centuries. So that really drove me to focus on what's going on now. This was the moment at which we could, in principle, at least so I thought then, really develop an economy in which uh, a much broader range of people could, both as individuals and as networks, become independent, become producers of whatever it is that they were interested in, become independent of commercial models. Looking back a quarter of a century later, that's not where we ended up. But that was the driving attraction from my perspective. And the interesting thing here, at least, I mean, if we got this right, you started off as a legal scholar with a law degree, and then I think you were clerking. And I'm not sure you have any formal training in technology, but you still are so clear-eyed and crisp when you write about technology, which is so fascinating. How did that interest develop from, I guess, initial foundation of the law? Well, I think in that first decade of thinking about internet and society, several of us in law were moving faster than in other disciplines, because comparatively speaking, we are a less disciplined discipline. In other words, there's more the publication system is less hierarchical and structured around peer review. The tenure and promotion and hiring system is less formal than many of the other social sciences. And so it was possible to move faster within law. And then it took about a decade for various other fields in the social sciences to really ramp up. And in truth, to this day, I think, for example, sociology departments, uh, anthropology departments, economics departments that are not in business schools are relatively thin on their technology-focused appointments, whereas there's a very rich and active legal academic network. So we're just, particularly American legal scholarship has very early adopted American pragmatism a century ago and became very much a home for people who want to understand how the actual world works and to design institutions for it. Obviously, that's not the only thing. There are plenty of people who have a more conservative and precedent-driven view of law or a more formalist-driven view of law. But American legal academia has been open to socially focused real-world investigation-based scholarship for well over a century. As we go deeper into the work which you've done over the last quarter century around role of technology in shaping societal outcomes and that interplay, if you will, could we start with what is the political economy of technology. Yeah, so, so this is one thing that where you really need to understand that is distinctive to modern growth, distinctive to essentially capitalism, is the fundamental distinction between modernity and earlier periods, between capitalism and pre-capitalist or non-capitalist system, is the centrality of the process of Schumpeterian innovation, that is to say, rapid, disruptive innovation driven by the pursuit of pricing power. Essentially, rents and more generally power in markets, not trying to be efficient and competitive at normal profit, but really destroying the current market, creating an entirely new market in which the innovator has power in order to be able to extract rents until people catch up. Now, two things about this phenomenon combine both everything that is positive about capitalism and modern growth and everything that is negative about capitalism and modern growth is first, 
innovators don't care whether the rents come from productivity or from power. In other words, or so an innovation that gives greater power to exploit weaker workers in the industrial revolution, very much women and children around the world, very much always locating production in places with relatively weak labor protections, whether that's the source of the profits or being able to make more anything from wheat per acre to better software. Profit-seeking is entirely agnostic between these two. And so you get this combination of, on one hand, rapid growth in actually things we need and want, but also continuous pursuit of opportunities for exploitation, exploitation of workers, exploitation of suppliers, exploitation of consumers. There's always a relation of exploitation, and there's always an ability to make more and better. The second thing is that the rate of change in modern economies is faster than social relations that are not driven by profit can adapt to. For centuries before, let's say, the 17th century, give or take, maybe late 16th in the Dutch Republic in England, you had Smithian growth. You basically had division of labor, trade-driven division of labor. It evolved relatively slowly in a way that society could contain and adapt. And it wasn't the driving logic of social relations. It was always embedded in social institutions, political culture, and contained by it. Only once you got to this rate of change did it come to the point where profit really dominated the continuous change in social structures. So you have tremendous social dislocation, you have tremendous opportunities for exploitation, and you have tremendous actual material growth in the ability to do more. So you get both the increase in material well-being for which you know, we measure just by the, the longevity and health of people as the most obvious way, and the patterns of exploitation and expropriation and social dislocation and confusion, both happening as a result of the same fundamental process of rent-driven and profit-driven rapid innovation. The political economy, you say, what's the political economy of technology? The political economy of technology is how do we harness the dynamism and contain the exploitation? How do we build a society in which we want to live based on some set of moral claims about what we owe each other, how we ought to organize our lives without losing the dynamism? And here, many countries do it differently some better than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. Ultimately, the root of all this is human nature. And it seems to me you're saying human nature has not changed over the course of the existence of the human civilization. Essentially, it's the same motivations. The technology is somewhat different. The motivations tend to be the same. Is that No, I actually think that explanations of human nature are the wrong level of thinking about this. The, the unit of analysis is not human nature, not the individual, it's a social relation. That's right. So, please, yeah, please go Let me it. explain. Let, so uh, what do I mean by the social relation? You can't have a teacher without a student or a pupil. It's a meaningless category. And what a teacher will or won't do with a student or a pupil, what a parent will or won't do with a kid is different from what they might do with someone else. And it's defined by the relation. I think it's important to understand that what we want for ourselves and our children, how we think about how to achieve it is not something that is transhistorical and was always there for all of human nature. It's always been embedded in a specific historical moment, in a specific cultural moment. And the whole idea that there's a natural human nature motivated to get ahead, for example, is specific to capitalism. 
It's here in modernity that we reframe the way in which people are with each other as arm's length interaction between individuals who care about themselves. That's not true of human nature generally. There is no human nature generally. All there are are social relations that are historically specific to their own moment that emerge as ways of thinking and ways of acting and ways of practicing at that historical moment. No human nature. That's a fascinating model. That's very, very interesting, actually. Hmm. So I'm a product of my time. I guess taking this further into its current moment, maybe let's talk a little bit about digital technology. Does digital technology differ at all on how this interaction, this interplay manifests? The, the fun thing is we've been able to you know, review your materials over, gosh, like two decades, probably. And we've seen your thinking evolve. And it'd be really nice to hear your latest thinking on how digital technology influences the structure and outcomes in society. So this is great. Let's take a few examples, but the core point, and I'll come back to it, the core point is that there is no single digital technology does X. There's always a set of different societies and cultures that have different institutional practices, both legal and social norms, and they absorb and adapt the technology distinctively. So, for example, what is the role of automation in labor? Well, it turns out Germany, Japan, Sweden have higher robotic density than the United States. But, but the background labor institutions are different enough that the impact on the organization of work is different. It's deployed as a high-end export industry with relatively highly trained labor in countries where labor is sufficiently powerful in institu institutionally in order to grab a share of the pie. And is deployed as labor displacing and undermining labor in societies in which labor has been sufficiently weakened or never was powerful as labor displaced. Let's take an example of something that I did a lot of work on from 2015 to 2021 which is social media and propaganda and disinformation, which is much more directly related. There haven't been a lot of cross-country comparisons, but one of the things that everybody knows that ain't so is that social media causes disinformation and political polarization. That's just false. It's empirically false based on work that I did with my team, that others who have published in the top peer-reviewed journals have shown, but let me just give an, a, a simple explanation. Actually, two simple examples. One, Democrats in the United States are younger than Republicans on average. Younger people in general use social media more than older people, but disinformation traveled more on the right than on the left. And the people who shared the most disinformation on social media were generally speaking older white men who were Republicans. So how could it possibly be that social media caused the circulation of disinformation when we, you see systematically asymmetric patterns of dissemination that are exactly the inverse of the actual distribution of levels of usage of social media? Similarly, we looked very deeply, particularly in 2016, at Russian interference in the U.S. And I worked with, and several months I felt like I was hunting in the gutters and a little bit of a McCarthy, I, oh, I, are you now or have you ever been a Russian troll? And we looked at the instances, for example, in the indictment against the Internet Research Agency against Gozin's outfit. Every time that we were actually able to say, okay, the claim is you did it here on this day and you disseminated this particular instance. Okay, because we had a platform where we could actually see what was going on on TV and what was going on on the New York Times, what was going on in Fox. It turns out every time they show up three or four days later figuring out that something has happened and they jump on the bandwagon after it doesn't matter anymore. So were they there? Yes. Were they trying to influence debate? Yes. Were they relevant to the dissemination of disinformation? No. 
The fact that you want to be a nasty doesn't mean you're good at it. So these are examples of what I mean when I say, including with diverse digital technologies, the driving dynamic is the existing political economy, which is to say the inherited set of institutions, technologies, ideology, or the common sense shared in a society into which a new technology is introduced. And it gets filtered and shaped in its social impact based on that inherited set of social relations. So again, in the same context, efforts to interfere in German elections went very poorly because it turns out the role of public media in Germany is much more stabilized and respected than it is in the U.S., on the other hand, I have no reason to doubt when people say that so many people get their news in the Philippines through WhatsApp, that that in fact was a major vector. Because again, the difference is not that technology somehow forces itself on a society, but rather a society comes with its inherited conditions and then adapts and adopts the technology in ways that reflect it's then social structure. So you yeah, need to understand the particular social relations, a particular moment, the affordances of the technology, who adopts it and how in order to understand its relative role in what's going on. You described the macro level, I guess you mapped out kind of the in abstractions, of course, the various factors that, that matter. You talk about institutions, ideology, technology, anything else you would add to the higher level, the macro level factors that sort of are all in the soup that sort of influence each other in this complex system? So my preference analytically is actually to avoid complexification, if at all possible, and to reduce the set of components that need to be understood. Institutions by itself is a large category that includes both formal institutions enforced by the states, that is to say law, regulation of various sorts, etc., and social norms, social habits, practices in society. So that's already a relatively complex and rich set of categories. Ideology is a term that I use, but is easily misunderstood because we very often think of it in terms of like a political ideology, liberals versus conservatives. And I mean something much more basic. It's really the shared common sense in a society about what goes with what and what doesn't go with what. And with regard, and technology obviously is a complex and rich category. If anything, I would further simplify and say there are social and material components that shape a social reality, the social being institutions and ideology, the material being nature and technology. And in that regard, when we think of technology, what we're leaving out is the natural world within which all of this is happening, which obviously we're now a lot more sensitive to the real carrying limitations of nature and the physical world. But I'd say no. I'd say, to me, it's most useful to try to contain the set of areas that need to be understood rather than broaden and put in, as you say, a soup. I'd rather try to describe an analytically tractable set of components rather than list a range of potential contributors. And I know what you're mentioning is the fact that technology may not be shaping human society and structure as much as we feel it does, based on two instances you've mentioned, one being the effect of robotics, etc., and the adoption of robotics in different countries, second being the impact of social media. If we were to inverse that question, how does ideology and institutions shape technology and economy? What's your point of view on that? Great, great. So let's take our current understanding of data and AI, a small issue. The core driver of so much of this innovation is the continuous manipulation 
of preferences in order to sell advertising space. It's so much of the collection of data, its analysis is a function of the fact that we've gotten in physical manufacturing technologies to a point where we can trivially produce everything that reasonable human beings would want. And so the continuous manufacture of new desires becomes a major driver and focus of these systems. And that's why you're getting so much consumer data collection. That's why you're, that's why the frame of so much of the analysis, particularly obviously with Google and Facebook, but more generally is about collection of consumer data and creation of consumer profiling and trying to understand that set of things. So that's, that's an example for where the fact that what's driving the analysis is profit orientation on the background of conditions where really at the end of the day, you need to continuously manufacture new desires, new wants, because uh, that's the only way in which you can actually uh, create new services that's shaping that focus. Now, the question is, what would be an alternative? The relative lower private investment in alternative materials to plastics, in the strong role of governmental subsidies in alternative energy. All of these are, are focused on the fact that when the driving model of innovation is this effort to extract higher rents, you get overinvestment in relatively lower cost, faster technological development rather than in these longer, high positive spillover larger um, uh, infrastructure investment. That's where you see the central role of social and industrial policy in shaping investments in alternative energy to try to get there. So again, that's, that's a context in which why is it that in the last 20 years, we saw so much more investment in software and information and communications technology and so much less Things are moving now because of those public commitments. I'm not saying nothing can be done to steer. This is not a, I'm not defeatist, but I am saying that, that you can't leave the profit motive as the, in the driver's seat. There's a difference between having profit motives sit as the engine and sitting in the driver's seat. And we've had it sitting in the driver's seat primarily rather than trying to assure that it's sitting in the engine, but with a much more socially accountable model for driving and steering where it goes, which again, in the context of relative investments in alternative energy versus IT, in investments in the relatively still much too low investment in alternative materials that we won't drown in, that's the central role of actually building state capacity and social capacity to do the steering. Got it. Thank you. And what are the main issues you've observed with the market and state as principles of social organization? So part of the problem, not part of the problem, <laughs> the central problem that we face is that of imperfection. That is to say, in our public debates, we encounter almost a binary debate between those who think that markets should be allowed, should be liberated to drive social outcomes on their own because states are necessarily fallible and corruptible and can be captured. And those who say, no, we need strong regulation, etc. The problem, of course, is that both sides are right about the other side. That is to say, markets are systematically driving not only growth in things that matter, but also social dislocation and growth in things that are harmful. There's ever been as much opioids, obesity, 
environmental degradation are every bit as much the outcome of free markets as the decline in the number of famines or new vaccines. But the same is true in the other side. That is to say, particularly increasingly now, as we're seeing more and more countries that were formerly somewhat more democratic becoming more authoritarian, but even democratic countries failing in their own way, all of the complaints about the potential for regulatory capture, about crony capitalism, about simply failure of imagination, all of those are true too. And so we have this problem that both of these major systems are fallible and systematically always fallible. I'd say 20 some years ago, I was more optimistic that if we could build social systems that are neither market nor state, and that are what I call then commons-based peer production, systems that are very much about people coming together and building what they see together, would be systematically better. And in fact, we got things that were systematically better. I mean, the, one of the fascinating things about the study of disinformation that I was doing for several years in the last decade is to see how widely trusted Wikipedia is, more so than any professionally and commercially or state-run media, Wikipedia maintained credibility. That's remarkable. Wikipedia 20 years ago would have been understood as an impossibility. There's no way to get tens of thousands of volunteers to produce the basic knowledge utility in a way that is sustainable. And unlike free software, Wikipedia didn't get incorporated and captured by major companies in the way that free software, much of it did get integrated and become much more commercialized. Again, if you think of a, a signal, then you see that the one messaging platform that really is reliably private is the one that's built on commons-based peer production based on non-commercial incentives and not controlled by a state. And so it was this, this third mode that's neither state nor market that I thought was really going to provide the alternative. I think it was a lot easier to believe until in 2006, 2007, 2008, much less earlier in the decade. Unfortunately, we're seeing that the applications have not really expanded beyond those that came originally. I think we found that both markets and the profit motive and states were able to move faster in a more organized way over time to occupy many of the alternative spaces. And we saw that with the Musk takeover of Twitter. And for a moment, there was a movement to move to Mastodon, which is precisely the response both to the commercial model with all of the problems of Musk running Twitter and to the state-based model, which we see now with Macron trying to shut down protest in collaboration with firms and instead have an actual socially governed federated model. The problem is lock-in and who gets there first and lock-in. And it was We've seen it hasn't actually, there was a brief moment of transition and it doesn't look like it's actually been able to take over. So we have, that's one thing. The second thing, obviously there's, as Wikipedia became much more important, there's a lot more research on the internal limitations of social processes. It turns out we are not the nicest people to each other. It turns out we develop governance models that are themselves hierarchical. It turns out highly gendered and problematic in that regard, much of the, certainly in free software development. And so it turns out that peer production is also fallible. And so we're left with these three fundamentally fallible systems, states, markets, and social uh, organizations. And we're left with this deep problem of optimizing governance by trading off tasks between three fundamentally fallible systems and trying to design how they account to each other, how they correct 
for the most common failures in them. And that, to me, is where the future of institutional design is. It's the recognition of the fundamental fallibility and the effort to load the balance between these systems such that you rebuild state capacity from the bottom that it reached under neoliberalism and the effort to, dis- to, dis- to, to essentially denude the state of its role altogether. You try to rebuild that, but you try to rebuild it with real accountability to social organizations and to socially motivated, activated citizens. And you try both of these in a way that harnesses the dynamism of profit-oriented innovation, but steers it in directions that are more socially accountable. That's a lot easier to say than to do. So isn't the common theme between state market and peer production human nature and human relationship then, which kind of drives... So those are two things, human nature and human relations. As I said earlier, I have very small belief in explanations that are based on human nature in a broad sense of something that is true of human beings everywhere for all time and just responding to incentives of some sort or another. But certainly, certainly the fallibility of all these institutions comes from the particular structures of social relations as we have them. But I think in this regard, different countries have different opportunities because they have different inherited social practices. I think, for example, the U.S. has a particularly weak civil service by comparison, say, to Europe. But there are many countries in the world with much more corrupt and inept civil services and efforts to locate the answer in state supervision in countries that don't have any tradition of civil service is very different. And so again, there's no single answer. The answer is, given where I am here, let me look at this society with its history and its institutional relations. And for all I know here, Because this is a place with strong patriarchal families and a strong clan structure and a corrupt government, this happens to be a place where it's entirely possible that a profit-oriented company or a fully entrepreneurial model will actually do things much better, even including performing traditionally public functions, it'll be better there. In a different case, I find, for example, the U.S. is going to have a much harder time than the EU or many of the countries in the EU in actually implementing reasonable technology steering because we have such a strong ideological commitment to skepticism about government that has both a left spin and a right spin. And a continued fascination with market-based behavior as though it's especially good and relatively weak tradition of civil service. And so we're working with weaker tools than countries where it's completely expected that top graduates will go into the civil service and work within the state in a much more active role with a stronger executive and civil service and a relatively weaker judiciary, we have the other way around. You need to design governance systems for the social environment into which they will be introduced, and the social environment is necessarily inherited. It seems to me that you've sort of been sketching out your theory of change. That's maybe a somewhat pretentious way to put it. Your theory of our existence And maybe if you could kind of synthesize this a little bit further, it seems to me that in that theory of change, you're placing rent-seeking and profit-seeking through capitalism as this essential piece of your theory of change. Why do you think that is? Why does that feature in such a prominent way in our society today if you accept at face value your model of social relations? Why is that such a prominent part of it? 
No, that's really the, the reason you're hearing this now is because that's really the book I'm working on, trying to answer that question. How did we get here uh, uh, over hundreds of years? The basic answer is that dynamic innovation created tremendous military power and the ability to impose unequal trade relations and unequal diplomatic relations on anyone who didn't adopt it. And so what you have is essentially starting with a set of urban centers networked, and I go back a thousand years, that are able to catch ever larger political social units and expand their control. And because they move much faster than the powers around them that are, they're not, not growing, right? They, they, if you go to 1700 and you look at Indian cotton printing, the massive industry of extremely sophisticated production system that's able to produce massive amounts of cloth exported to Europe and China, but on a relatively slow, innovating model that's embedded in an existing set of social relations. Similarly, Chinese ceramics and lacquerware, re much more sophisticated than anything in terms of division of labor and scale of production, much more sophisticated than anything that was then available in Europe. But it was growing relatively slowly. It was growing over time, slowly, gradually, through Smithian div division of labor. Once you had a handful of countries or societies moving so fast, you suddenly have the Dutch Republic able to beat the Spanish Empire because they're able to actually mobilize much larger navies, much larger groups of mercenaries, in a way that suddenly France says, oh, we want some of that, but can't do it internally. England wants some of that, but, can't, but can do it. So essentially what you get is by the 18th century, this system fights multiple wars. England spends more than half its time over 120 years fighting against France, Spain, colonizing the world. And essentially you either catch up and imitate or you get colonized and are forced to be incorporated in a subordinate position in this system. The rate of change and the, and the acceptance that rate of change is everything and that all social consideration needs to be dominated by this innovation that's driven by profit-seeking and power-seeking becomes the driving force that actually conquers the world, not metaphorically. Physically. And when Germany and Japan and France start to catch up in the 19th century, they catch up. We have this massive conflagration, the 30-year war between 1914 and 1945, at the end of which we have the present system that's now on the verge of collapse. But the answer is the consistent, rapid innovation in pursuit of power produces power imbalances. And everybody is forced to follow, either by imitation, if they succeed in being together with the frontier, or in a subordinate and exploited position. Those are the only two options in a world that has this level and this rate of, of change that's translated into power. Economic power, military power in combination. What is it that we don't understand about the interaction of technology, society, institution, and ideology that from your vantage point requires further exploration? Let me answer that in two ways. One, describing what I see as the primary error in how we're thinking about these things, and the other, the primary area of inquiry that we need to learn that I, I don't have the answer for, but that's what we need to learn. The primary error is to think that technology is an autonomous system that develops on its own steam, as it were, and sets the terms of social life 
independently of the actual social model. So, for example, from about 1990-ish, 91, 92, until six or seven years ago, as data about rising inequality began to come out over the last 40 years, the dominant economic theory for why we have inequality was called skills-biased technical change. That is to say, technology, in particular automation and information technology, led to developed of its own accord, and it led to a polarization of the kind of skills that were particularly scarce and useful, high skill and low skill, and, and was easiest to automate things that were what were called middle skill. Even that really changed over the decades. Every decade, the theory changed a little bit. But the core vision was one that there is something internal to the technology that determines its direction. And that sets the conditions to which society adapts and the social adaptation is essentially inequality and polarization. In the last six or seven years, under sustained empirical attack, that position has more or less collapsed in academic, not in terms of popular in terms of popular explanations, it continues to live, obviously, because it's convenient for those who are doing well to say it's, it's just a function of technology. Instead, it's much more a function of labor law, of tax policy, of trade policy, much institutions, tax, labor, trade, much more important than technology. Instead, technology develops to take advantage of these particular points of weakness. If we abstract one layer, the core mistake is the continuation of thinking that technology marches to the beat of its own drum, as opposed to that it's a function of existing social relations. And I think we're doing the same thing now with AI. The big question that I think we need to answer, and in some sense, this is a different version of something we've already talked about earlier in this conversation, is, okay, fine, you say that technology is a function of social relations. How the heck do we govern it? What do we do? On the background of all of the fallibility that I've already described in state institutions and social institutions. And that's, to me, a deeply unsolved problem. But again, we can't approach the solution if we misdiagnose the problem. And the problem is, the question becomes, how do you build a society that is sufficiently stable, sufficiently open and, with, and democratic in the sense that people can actually express what it is that they want and distributes the gains of innovation in a way that is sufficiently fair that people can actually engage in understanding what their own interests are. As things stand at the moment, the levels of dislocation are so great that what we're seeing is an entrenchment of ethnocentric populist politics that are going to drive us in the opposite direction of where we need to go in terms of actually getting something like democratically accountable social change. And I think that's, to a great extent, the consequence, again, not of technology, but people think that populism is because of social media and disinformation. I think that's wrong. It's fundamentally wrong. It's, 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 it's a function of the fact that people's lives, in the U.S., this is very extreme. People's lives, other than the very tippy-tippy-top 1% or 5%, are actually bad. People's lives are miserable. You see this in the declining life expectancy. You see this in the decline, in, in the increased morbidity. People's lives are actually worse. Millions of people, tens of millions of people's lives are actually worse, and particularly worse relative to the expectations of rising tide raises all boats that was so central to neoliberalism. And so that's the challenge. The challenge is how we get to a point 
of, of a sufficiently stable and fair society to allow us to actually engage rationally in governance of society at large, and then the technology can follow and fall into place. But unless we solve that, we're just using the technology as essentially a distraction. We don't say it's our institutions, it's our politics, it's the way we distribute wealth and power in society. We need to address that. We say it's the technology. The technology is changing everything. And we're distracting away from the things that actually need to be done. It's a good punching bag. We're going to actually shift gears here a little bit. And we're going to talk about something that you've been so early on and so cogent on as well. You've written very cogently on the topic of commons-based peer production, also called open source by some. And let us maybe start by understanding what the system is and how it compares to other models of value creation. So briefly, what is commons-based peer production? How would you distinguish it with other models of value creation? I think today it's easy for people to understand it because everybody uses Wikipedia, and that's essentially the model. The model is when I say commons, I mean the property regime that governs the resources and the outputs of production. Essentially, anyone is privileged to use it however they want. That's this particular kind of open commons. There are also more limited commons of various sorts, but let's for now talk about something like Wikipedia, particularly in information. So it's the resources are not proprietary, but rather are open and shared. The outputs are not proprietary, but rather open and shared. And the people who contribute around this commons. Now, the peer production component is essentially lots of people contributing various size contributions based on what they can and know how to do to produce a given project. Again, the primary alternative. So what do we normally think of in production? We think of a company. And so the company owns the resources, contracts out with suppliers, contracts out with workers, sells to consumers. The resources in production are proprietary to the company. The machines are proprietary to the company, the labor is proprietary to the workers and is contracted. And the outputs are proprietary to the company and sold. So that's the that's our, our standard capitalist model of production. We also have um, a model of production that is state-based. So the state owns uh, these particular resources, issues contracts to various suppliers to produce for them, and the state then owns, whether it's the road, the bridge, whatever it is that the state is producing. Again, here, the model of organization, the model of funding is the tax system or, or debt obligations. The model of decision-making is based on the managerialism of the state instead of the managerialism of the firm. And often it's a mix of these two where the state contracts out firms to do it in their way. What's critical in all of these is that the resources are owned by someone rather than shared collectively. And, and the core of that is to exclude anybody else from working with these resources or getting access to the products. Instead, with commons-based peer production, we have free and open access to the resources, free and open access to the outputs, which means that the governance structure is one that is voluntaristic and collaborative rather than competitive or managerial. That's the core idea of this third mode of production, which was central to the LAMP stack, to core technology components. And I would say as of 2000, it was considered impossible. Right? Well, you just violated all models of rational actor theory, all models of then prevailing economics. Why in the world would people do this? How could you, how could you capture the benefits from investment, et cetera? 
but that's the model. And just a quick follow-up on that. Is it useful to talk about the difference between commons and public goods? Because it feels like there's some subtlety here that might need to be teased out because Wikipedia uses a commons-based peer production model, but it's a public good. And so to what extent does that have to be sort of differentiated? Is it meaningful to talk about the difference? It's critical to understand the, the differences. First of all, public goods describes attributes of the resource. Commons describe attributes of an institutional system. A, pub, a good is a public good when its use and consumption by one person does not compete with that of another. I read a book, the physical pages are private goods, but the content of the book, once it's written, is a public good. You can read it, such, and you can read it, all, a million people can read it, and the author doesn't need to write it again. Written once, it, the good is non-rival in consumption. National defense is a public good. Information is a public good once produced. It's fundamentally an attribute of the resource that if, and, and the consequence of that is that if it is priced at a positive price above zero, it will be under-consumed. So necessarily any positive price for an information good entails loss of social welfare. That's what makes information a public good. It's in the nature of the physical material nature of the resource to be non-rival in consumption. A commons is an institutional model that can work for public goods if you can figure out how to repay the initial production. So for example, when we today talk about pharmaceuticals and whether patents are better than prizes or government prizes or government funding is better than patents, the underlying physical fact is that the information that if you put these molecules together with these molecules in this particular way, it will cure that disease. That information is a public good. If you can solve the problem of developing that information, any person who doesn't get the medicine and is sick or dies is a real cost in terms of human cost for what? For information that is a public good. And so that's why we can say, if we solve the problem of the initial development of the knowledge, say with a price system, then the efficient price of the drug is not covering all of the research, but just covering the marginal manufacturer. And the same is true, obviously, for software and for any other kind of, of information. A commons is a situation where anyone can use these resources if it can solve this problem of initial investment. In the case of something like Wikipedia, because the labor is contributed voluntarily, the, the motivations that are driving the production are not profit. You don't need the proprietary framework. You can have an open commons. There are other kinds of commons that, that were very central to the work of Lynn Ostrom, where they're not quite public goods in the same way. They are congestible, but nonetheless, the unit of management needs to be larger than the individual farm or fisherman or whatever it is. And so you have some set of people who have access to the commons. They govern the commons through some mechanism of collective decision-making. And that's more efficient than each one taking a single individual plot. So fisheries, for example, are somewhere where having individual rights is inefficient and creates too many transaction costs and too many barriers to efficient management of the fishery. But if you have open access commons, anybody can come and catch, you're going to have overfishing. So there, what you get are these systems that are intermediate Ostrom commons of these kinds. So it's a collectively governed set of people who have access to this resource, to the which is a common good resource, and they share it through an institutional mechanism called a commons or a limited commons. And this is something you alluded to, I guess. Why is common-based production so potent? 
So I think the original argument that I made, which is still true but needs to be cabined, is that knowledge is incremental and insights are broadly distributed in the population. For information, knowledge, and cultural goods, if you have a resource that anyone who has an insight can improve, it will learn faster than when you have just a very small number of engineers who are permitted to work on the project. So that essentially the model, and this is the model that most clearly worked in a measurable way in free and open source software. If you have broadly distributed knowledge and insight, then the shared resource can learn fastest, as it were, and develop fastest because this person's knowledge works for company A and this person's knowledge who works for company B actually in interaction could be the best combination of skills, but they wouldn't know about each other because each one is working on the products that are proprietary to companies A and B. Instead, they meet in the commons and they co-develop this new facility. And that actually was central to the success of open source or free software early on. Now, what we've learned in the last, I'd say, 10 to 12 years is that comes at the cost of focus and direction. And particularly in those last stages, consumer-facing, ease of use, etc. What ends up happening is that you can have something that's every bit as good or even better, but at the end of the day won't be adopted because it doesn't come built in with the structures to disseminate it and distribute it, et cetera. We could have had widespread mesh networks with everybody sharing their own, their Wi-Fi networks. If people were all somewhat technologically literate and cared about have been free of the last mile. But I mean, OpenWRT have been there for 20 some years. And yet, we didn't get rooftop community networks as, as we thought 25 years ago. What we got instead were carrier-based Wi-Fi networks, even though it makes no sense, let alone 5G, which is just essentially distributed small cell networks. So there's a real trade-off there between the speed of learning, which is better with an open system, and the directedness and marketing and assurance for a large population of people who don't really know that that's what they want. And so there are real trade-offs between these two, but yeah, I continue to think that as a matter simply of knowledge development and diffusion, peer-based systems and open commons-based systems are better, faster learning systems. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's in, in the context you think that they add the most value, essentially. Is that correct? So with, I'd say the most value is the question, is a different question, because I also think that critically, they provide a system that is not driven by profit or state authority. And so they can be, no, not all are by any stretch of the imagination, but they can also be more democratic. Mm. And in the teeth of technological change that shapes people's lives so dramatically, being independent of profit orientation and independent of political control is a very different kind of value proposition. And when you look at something like Signal, it's at least as much its institutional structure as a foundation, as a commons-based model, is at least as large as the fact that it was able to develop this end-to-end -end encryption. Yeah. That in principle, other in, in principle, proprietary companies would have and could have. Mm -hmm. But the critical value proposition was actually 
the values orientation toward public values or social values rather than toward profit or toward state authority. And we have 30 seconds here for a question that you can reject if you want to, but we'll give you 30 seconds to offer your thoughts on the ways that blockchain could potentially add value as an organizing principle for society. Is there any value in having these decentralized systems a la Bitcoin and Ethereum? So this is one of those, if, if there's ever been an example where the theory of the technology could have enabled decentralized self-governing systems, but the profit-oriented turned it into a total mess, it's blockchain. This is one area where the idea that voting is based on how much what is even with Ethereum, what you vote with your dollars. We have a system in which the more dollars you have, we call it, we don't call it a democracy, we don't call it decentralized, we call it a plutocracy. That's what it developed into. That's precisely a technological domain. I can't think of a technological domain that more clearly exhibits the limitations of profit orientation as a driver of innovation than what's happened with blockchain and the promise of decentralization and the reality of NFTs. NFTs, really? That's innovation? You take something that is non-scarce and you turn it scarce? It can't possibly be our model for innovation. I kid you not, we would have loved to speak more, but in the interest of time, we will transition to our last section. We call it the outro section. What motivates you? Interest, curiosity. Which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear? Everything we talked about. (laughs) That is non-consensus for sure. What or who has had the most impact on your thinking, career, or life? Oh, that's a lot more than 10 seconds. I'm fortunate to have had some fantastic teachers, but in terms of most influence on my life, my kids. Yeah. And it was such a wonderful, it was such a wonderful passage in uh, The Penguin and the Leviathan. We talked about a mom and and a kid trying to get into the the car and you seemed so thoughtful about all that stuff. So yeah, you seem to be a really good parent too. What are you currently reading? So let's see. I have a reading group with my family. We're reading Heart of Darkness. I have a reading group with my colleagues. We're reading Black Reconstruction. Otherwise, I'm reading the Shard Lake series of investigations during Tudor times. Who are your favorite writers or podcasters? Again, many. I'm a big fan of Margaret Atwoods. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, Visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company, or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.